0: he is risen risen all right brothers and sisters welcome what a joy it is to celebrate our first Easter Sunday Resurrection Sunday as a church family Uh, if this is your first time visiting with us I want to welcome you to this gathering of Christ Covenant Fellowship Uh, we're happy to have you here we're excited to celebrate, excited to get to know you. Uh, If you want to introduce yourself to someone after the service, we would love to meet you. Uh, You can introduce yourself to any one of our members, pastors. Uh, We'd love to just introduce ourselves as well, tell you more about the life of our church. As a church, we've been studying Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And today we find ourselves in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2. Uh, If you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and join me there. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, it's in the New Testament towards the end. If you're new to the Bible, don't be afraid to ask somebody where to find it. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, what we're going to do is I'm going to read this passage for us. We're going to pray. We're going to ask God to move through the power of his spirit, the preaching of his word. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 reads this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father God, this text has massive implications. It it teaches us so much about Jesus. Father, we thank you that we have your word. We thank you, God, that your word, your spirit moves through your word, God, and it transforms our mind. So, Father, what we know not would you teach us And what we are not, would you make us? And what we have not, would you give us? By your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name, God's people said, amen. Amen. I found it fitting that we would find ourselves here in this passage on Resurrection Sunday. Uh, This passage is often referred to as the Christ hymn. And what we have here is a beautiful reminder that the way of our Lord, the path of our Lord to glory was the way of a humble, obedient service to to suffering, to death. Um, Now there's been much debate and speculation between many scholars throughout the years on Whether Paul actually personally wrote this himself or if he is quoting an early hymn of the church that was familiar to these first century Christians. Uh, But thankfully, our interpretation does not depend on finding an answer to the question of authorship. Since Paul sets forth this hymn in this letter, he is essentially placing his stamp of approval on it. He's saying that everything that is here is true. And ultimately, we know that God is doing that as well since we know that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I've titled this sermon, From humiliation to exaltation, Jesus is alive. From humiliation to exaltation, Jesus is alive. And oh, brothers and sisters, is he alive? And he's working today. He's working today as a mediator between man and God. He intercedes on behalf of his people. That is a glorious truth and reminder and comfort to those who live in the reality of a fallen world. But who is Jesus? Who is this man named Jesus Christ, right? This is the question that we've got to get right. Jesus is the centerpiece to our salvation. Jesus is the centerpiece of Christianity. In David McCullough's book, The Trivialization of God, he tells a story of when Lloyd C. Douglas, you may be familiar with him, he was a famous author. He wrote uh, The Robe and some other novels. Now, when Lloyd C. Douglas was in college and uh, during his time in college, it said he lived in a boarding house. And downstairs of that boarding house where he resided lived a retired wheelchair bound music professor on the first floor. And it's told that each morning Douglas would go downstairs and he would stick his head in the door of uh, this old music teacher's room. And he would ask the same question. And he would say, what's the good news? The old man would pick up his tuning fork and he would tap it on the side of his wheelchair. And he would say, that's middle C. That's a musical note for all my uh, people that may not be familiar with music. He says, it was middle C yesterday. It will be middle C tomorrow. It will be middle C a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs sings flat. The piano across the hall is out of tune. But my friends, that is middle C. See, this old man had found an unchanging truth to which he could depend. A constant reality to which he could cling to. And then McCullough writes, Jesus Christ is our tuning fork. Ringing out middle C in a cacophonous, that word just means noisy, world of competing truths. His pitch defines total reality and sets forth every other note in its proper place. Without him, without Jesus, truth, especially truth about God, will be distorted, disordered, and disharmonious. To hear the music of heaven, you must listen to him. See, Paul knew that this was vital for the lives of these Christians in Philippi. Brothers and sisters, it is vital for us today right we can't just shout and proclaim a resurrection if we don't know who it was that was resurrected if we don't get it right about Jesus then we will fail to miss the point listen if this Jesus isn't who this passage says he is then brothers and sisters we have a problem there there is no resurrection and even if there was, or, or maybe there could be, it would have no power if the one who was resurrected isn't exactly who this text says he was. As we work through verses 5 through 11, we're going to see Jesus' walk from humiliation to exaltation. And we will live, leave with the promise that Jesus Christ is indeed alive. He is risen. Look at verse 5. He says have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. So here what we see is Paul's bridge from verses 1 through 4 which Pastor Brandon gave us a a, a beautiful sermon last week. And We see that their attitude was now switched from their minds of their relationships to one another to now a change of focus on their minds and their attitude and understanding of who Jesus Christ was. But look at the language that we see Paul use. He doesn't say you have to try to earn this. He doesn't say it's something that you can obtain. He says, which is yours in Christ Jesus? Uh, One New Testament scholar says, verse 5 is a call to apply the communal life, the precedent that is theirs by virtue of the fact that they are in Christ. See, it starts there. Paul urges his reader to focus on what they already have by being found in Christ Jesus. See, this is not a call to live this way in order to obtain. It's not so they can obtain a position in Christ, but rather it is a call to live in a specific way because of what they have already obtained in Christ. gonna give you an example here. Hypothetical example. Uh, if I were to have a lot of money, right? Like I said, super hypothetical illustration. Nevertheless, if I've got a lot of money, right? And, and I do good things with my money, right? I, I, I bless people. I, I give it away. I'm, I'm always using it to encourage others. I, 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 I'm generous with this money that I have. I have possession of it and I'm using it to be generous. Now that's a lot different than if I were to manipulate situations in order to try to obtain a lot of money, right? So say I befriend someone who's got a lot of money and I'm, I'm wooing them and I'm being nice and them, just hoping I can get a piece of the pie, right? Two different things, action is based because I have in one, and the action is based to gain in the other. See, one is working from a place of possession. The other is working to gain possession. So we can translate verse 5 like this. Let your actions towards one another arise out of your life In Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you were a believer, you were in Christ. Amen? You've been changed. You were new. We don't become saved and become changed to continue how we were. No, no, no. We're changed to walk in the newness of life, fullness of life. The call of Christianity is to first be found in Christ, not to be like Christ. Listen, that's important. That's important. Our our text teaches us that. Listen, if if we aim to follow Jesus' example while missing the biblical truth that apart from Christ, our good works are worthless, They serve no point. They're useless apart from Christ. It is only through Jesus' life, death, resurrection that we are saved. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's no good deed. There's no amount of anything that you can do to gain approval God It is because of Jesus it's all because of Jesus and then this hymn goes on to describe the humility that Christ displayed so that we could be found in him let's read verses 6 through 8 he says who Jesus right though he was talking about Jesus here, in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see the Humility of Christ on full display here. Verse 6, we see that Jesus was in the form of God. And what this means is that prior to the incarnation, where Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem, becomes flesh, becomes human, Christ was in the form of God. This most naturally refers to the pre-existence of Christ. See, Jesus, the eternal Son, was there with the Father before he was born in Bethlehem. John 1-1 tells us, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Form here means the true and the exact nature of something. Possessing all the attributes and characteristics of something. So so therefore, having the form of God is the equivalent to having equality with God. He is God. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is, has been, will always be God. We have to get this right. Form is also a reference to Christ being the ultimate image of God, the only image of God, as Hebrews 1.3 tells us, right? He is the exact imprint of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus Christ, this man. Who humbly gave himself. He's God. He's God. So Jesus Christ, He exists fully, holy in eternity's past. I'm living in perfect communion. The, the Trinitarian Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They, they need nothing else. They have perfect. Community, fully satisfied in the selves, never needing anything. But we read he doesn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He has it all, needs nothing. He says, going to let that go. So unlike sinful human beings like you and me, what we would do in that position. Jesus, who was God, chose not to exploit his personal advantages of position and power for selfish purposes. He could have leveraged his status, right? He could have used his status here. Jesus, form of God, with all power, all glory. But what does Jesus Christ do? He empties himself. He empties himself, it says, by taking the form of now a servant, being born in what? The likeness of men. So he takes the form of a servant. He's born. Becomes humanity. Now, empty here does not mean that the Son of God emptied himself of his deity in, in some kind of uh, theological subtraction here. Okay, this is important to know. Emptied here means uh, divestiture, right? He, he divested himself of position and prestige. And how did the Son of God divest himself? Well, through the incarnation. See, the the son of God, God becomes man. And Paul uses these two clauses to explain more precisely the emptying. Okay, this is, this is important here. He empties himself by one, he takes the form of a servant. And then two, by being born in the likeness of men. That's what the text tells us. And these two phrases are Mutually interpreting, right? They pretty much interpret each other. The only way for the Son of God to become a servant was to take the form of a man. This is what the text teaches us here. He's got to enter into the world, he's got to become man, he's got to become flesh. So therefore the pre-incarnate son of God divested himself of position and prestige not by subtracting deity but by adding humanity. He becomes the God-man now. He adds to himself. Calvin writes, Christ indeed could not renounce his divinity. he, He doesn't stop his divinity but he kept it concealed for a time that under the weakness of the flesh it might not be seen so Christ's emptying was accomplished not by subtracting but by adding to here don't let that confuse you don't let anyone tell you different there's a lot of people out there that that says otherwise um popular uh, worship band does. I won't say their name, but it starts with Beth, ends with L. <laughs> Stay away from them. I will unapologetically say that. These words that take the form of a servant, man, they probably hit hard for these Christians in Philippi. They, they hit hard for them because they were reminded of the humiliation of slaves and servants in their own contemporary context and what paul is telling them here he's saying that jesus christ displayed this type of humility himself so i mean they've got a a a tangible example in their context and they're saying jesus christ god (laughs) that's the form he chooses to take he humbles himself by choice No one makes Jesus do this. We'll see here in a moment. We read that he is in the likeness of men. Now this isn't a gender specific, it it, means a general humanity here. He's like general humanity. God the Son chooses to come. Have common experiences. We got to remember here, right? Jesus went through the same things that we went through. Our struggles, our sadness, our temptations. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. The writer of Hebrews tells us, But it doesn't stop with the likeness of men. No, Jesus came for a purpose. He came to do something. He came on a mission. It says he was being found in human form. Verse 8. He humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. I mean, it's it's one thing to humble yourself to the point of becoming human. I mean, I know how I am, and you know how you are. But to humble himself to the point of death on a cross—I mean, this is staggering, astonishing. The verb "humbled" here is noteworthy because it is frequently used regarding slaves as their loss of privilege or status. He humbles himself here. And he becomes obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross shows the radical measure of Christ's humility. See, he doesn't even regard himself above death. Even the most brutal, the most shameful, excruciating death ever devised, crucifixion. Hey, if you don't know the horrors of a Roman crucifixion, do some research this afternoon. The cross was deemed as especially appropriate death for rebels and slaves because it was designed not to just kill but also to shame. This wasn't just a, okay, he's, he's done, he's off, right? To shame him, to torture. Death would come by suffocation after the victim was stripped down and nailed to the cross through his ankles and wrist, beaten, tortured. Then, when the victim could no longer Breathe, right? couldn't lift himself up to, to get air in the lungs. They would eventually suffocate and die. The excruciating pain and shame was common to, to all who suffered and were crucified. But see, Jesus' suffering on the cross is unparalleled and unequaled because he bore the terrible curse of sin and suffered the awful wrath of God as an atoning substitute and sacrifice as well. No one else did that. Jesus was the only one who could. To these Christians in the Roman colony of Philippi, the phrase death on a cross would drive Home, the lesson that Jesus's identification with humanity had reached the lowest rung of the ladder like rock bottom. It's not just that he comes and and has to live in, in a broken world, it's not just that he struggles, it's not just that he has temptations. It's that he dies on a cross for you, bearing the weight of your sin, bearing the weight of mine. I don't know if you are, but I'm painfully aware of my shortcomings daily. Look back at my past and why, God? Why would you save me? I think of daily mistakes. I wonder, God, why would you keep me? (laughs) I wouldn't keep me. I ask my wife that all the time. Why do you keep me around? I tell her, too, if you leave, I'm going with you. But Jesus He comes. He humbles himself takes this lowly road. Even the lowest position possible was not too low for the humble mind of Christ. Only the most incredible humility, the lowest mindset could willingly accept the lowest place possible. And that is Jesus. I mean, he's the one that goes from form of God to death on a cross for you and me humbly giving himself this text tells us that he's not capitalizing on his status but rather sacrificing for those he loves to the point of death on a cross pause and reflect on that for a moment for you but then we get a complete reversal verses 9 through 11 we see that our lowly Savior, the humble Christ, the one who gave himself, he doesn't stay that way. It's exalted, vindicated. It is finished, telestai. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Verse 9 says, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I mean, you don't don't leave nothing out there. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what does this text tell us? Jesus didn't stay dead. Amen? He is alive. (laughs) And he's exalted. This word exalted means raise someone to the loftiest heights. And by adding highly exalted, it creates somewhat of a grammatical superlative. Here. he says that he's the best of the best hyper exalted you could say i mean th- nothing can compare to jesus we read that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that jesus is lord now this does not mean that everyone will worship Jesus in the same way. But it does mean that everyone will declare and openly acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about the biblical fact that every being will ultimately confess the lordship of Jesus Christ? Revelations 4, 2 through nine tells us that the angels in heaven will confess. Revelation 4:10 through 11 tells us that the spirit of the redeemed will confess. Romans 10:9 says that the obedient believers on earth will confess. Second Thessalonians 1:7 through9 say the disobedient rebels on earth will confess. First Peter 3:18 through22 tells us that the demons and lost humanity in hell, they will confess. In Matthew 7, Jesus gives a a stark reminder of this truth, right? That everyone will eventually confess him as Lord, but not in the same way. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, he said, many will say to me. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Weren't we awesome? See, a lot of American Christians have that mentality. Have that mentality that it's, I'm awesome, right? I mean, you're lucky to have me, Jesus. You know, I know you. You know, I went to church. You know, once every three Sundays, and, you know, I, I did some good stuff, and, you know, I, I did these things, and, you know, I served here and there. But do you follow him as Lord? Jesus says, I'm going to declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Brothers and sisters, if you, if you don't call Jesus Lord now, You will. You will either by God's grace now in worship or in fear when Jesus returns. And he will return because he is alive and he is exalted. And don't let the gravity of the word Lord be lost upon you today. This is the same word as the Hebrew word Yahweh which is the name set aside and a loan for God himself. <laughs> he is God. <laughs> Look, you got to do something with Jesus. I mean, even atheists, historians, everyone there was a man named Jesus Christ. What are you going to do with him? Read This is all for the glory of God. This is all for God's glory. Jesus' journey from humility on the cross to exaltation is Lord. It's all for the glory of God. And that Godhead includes the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Resurrection Sunday. All right, the day that Christians all over the world celebrate the fact that after Jesus Christ died a gruesome death, he was buried in a tomb, he rose. He rose again. He rose from the grave, conquering Satan, defeating death once and for all. And, brothers and sisters, this is the crux of Christianity. I mean, without a resurrection, It's not who he says he was. And his resurrection is vindication that the work is finished. So no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter the sins you've committed, the Bible says if we confess him as Lord, we follow him. He will forgive us. And his work becomes your work. We are found in him. Paul tells the church in Corinth, right? And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. He says, then also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He's saying, hey, those that have died, they've just perished. It's it's just done. I mean, what beautiful reminder for anyone who's ever lost anyone that those are in Christ are with Christ right now. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ, there's that term again, in Christ shall be made alive. Charles Spurgeon once said, the whole system of Christianity rests upon the fact that Christ is risen from the dead. For if Christ be not risen, then our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Ye are yet in your sins. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. That is the truth. That is the promise. That is the reason why we celebrate this glorious truth. The promise of Christianity. Because of his work, this promise is for you, for anyone who puts their faith in him. See, we will be raised with him. we raised to new life. I mean, that's what makes Easter, Resurrection Sunday, whatever you want to call it. That's what makes it glorious. It's our hope. Death doesn't have the final say the one who humbled himself to the point of death and gave his life for us, does. and His name is Jesus. Today we celebrate the fact that he is alive. We reflect now on our Savior. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper. We're going to take communion together. And communion is... For Christians, for those who have placed their faith in Christ, who trust in the substitutionary atonement, the work of Christ on their behalf. Uh, if that's not you, I just would ask that you would uh, not participate in this celebration. And just use this time to reflect and, and ask the Lord, right? Well, well why not? Why, why haven't I? Uh, communion for us also is for, for members of our church or members of a, another local body. that you, If you participate with another body regularly, then we would ask you to participate with us. I encourage everyone who's, uh, if you are a believer, to take a moment too. I'm going to give you a moment here. Man, examine your heart. If there is any um, unconfessed sin then unrepentant sin, then talk to the Lord, right? There's uh, plenty of scriptures that tell us that that we need to ensure that when we go to the supper that we don't have anger, bitterness, bitterness towards another, we don't have sin between us and God. So take some time to pause, reflect, and then what we'll do here in a moment is We'll pass out the pods to those who want to participate. then we will, the members of our church will read our covenant together. It's a reminder of who we are in Christ. But before we get there, let's just take a moment to pause, reflect. For those that are believers, take some time to confess, repent anything that is hindering. Your participation for those that aren't, take some time to reflect on this Jesus who is alive, died for you, rose again so you could have new life. The ushers will start to pass the baskets. Once you have it, uh, just pause for a moment. What we'll do in a moment is those that are participating will uh, take it together. And brothers and sisters, if you're not a part of the family of God, then let this just be a remind you, reminder to you of those that are. And the invitation to you as well. For all of the covenant members of Christ Covenant Fellowship, those that have uh, done our membership class and have actually covenanted t- together, um, as we reflect on the new covenant of Christ, we're also reminded that through the covenant of Christ is the only way to have true reconciliation with one another. It is the only way. So for the members of this church family, we're going to read our members' covenant together. It's going to be on the screen. uh, In the back, if you need a copy, I think our ushers uh, have some. If you need one, just raise your hand. Somebody will get you a copy of it. Uh, But this is for our members to read as we reflect and are reminded of the covenant that we have made together in and through Jesus Christ. So we'll read this together, and then when we're finished, we will participate in the supper. So having been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we now, depending upon the Holy Spirit, establish this covenant with one another. In all we do, we will aim to glorify and enjoy the God of our salvation. From whom and through whom and to whom are all things. To him be all glory forever. We will eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace by walking together in love and in the Spirit and by putting away all bitterness, anger, and injurious speech. With humility and gentleness, patience and love, we will be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. We will carry each other's burdens, rejoicing with those who rejoice, and weeping with those who weep. We will train our children in the instruction of the Lord, seeking to walk in a way that adorns the gospel of Christ before our family, friends, and neighbors. We will strive to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. As we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We will not neglect to gather together, but will support and treasure the biblical preaching of the whole counsel of God, the faithful observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and the loving exercise of church discipline. We will contribute cheerfully and generously to the church's expenses, the relief of the poor, and the advancement of the gospel, both to our neighbors and the nations. We allow the Bible to be our guide and final authority in all matters concerning faith and life. When we move from this place, we will unite as soon as possible with some other church to carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. In all of these things, we rely on our God, who has made a new and everlasting covenant with us, saying, They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart in one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart, and all my soul, by God's grace, Amen, Amen. So Paul uh, reminds the church in Corinth, First Corinthians eleven twenty-three through twenty-four. He reminds the church what uh, they are doing when they participate here. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He goes on to say that in the same way also he took the cup After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me, before we do, we had a dinner on Thursday with our church members. And I was just reminded that the night that Jesus did this, he he knew that his death was right around the corner he knew that his blood was about to be shed i mean so imagine looking at this cup and thinking about the blood that was about to be shed on behalf of rebellious humanity but he did it anyway so as we drink As we reflect, let us remember, let us proclaim that it is nothing but the blood of Jesus. Father God, we thank you so much that you have fed us through this sacrament. We thank you, God, that Jesus is alive. We thank you, Lord, that our God is different than all other gods. All who claim to be, all who want to be, all who try to be, there's one God. Father, we thank you so much for cross of Calvary, without which we would be lost. (laughs) And Father God, we thank you for vindicating and exalting our Savior. Jesus, we praise your name. We glorify your name as the name that is above every other name, Lord, Yahweh, God. Amen.